afternoon, I hope. Um, today, the message is called Of Benefit to the Master. Of Benefit to the Master, for those of you taking notes. And we're in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, um, which is a book written from Paul, the Apostle, to Timothy, who was his protege. And Timothy's at a place called Ephesus, at the church there, from which we get the book of Ephesians. And Paul's writing to him in order to, um, I guess, mentor him in a way. So to encourage him in what he ought to do as a pastor there in Ephesus, to stand up against faulty teaching, but also um, to organise the church in its practical day-to-day things. So I'm going to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we will begin. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. 1 to 16. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Father, you are the only wise God, holy and unapproachable, Lord God, immortal. Father, today I pray that you would speak to us, Lord God, as transcendent as you are, Lord God. You're also imminent. You're here with us, Lord God. You're close 
you're nearby, Lord God, and your word says that um, you draw near to us as we draw near to you. Father, today, draw us close. Father, speak to our hearts, Lord God. Give us what we need to love you. Father, speak through me, Lord God. Um, yeah, use me, Lord God, donkey as I am. I pray that you speak to your people. Amen. Amen. So, um, this message came about because I'm discontent. Um, I'm feeling quite discontent at work recently. And I work in a school and, yeah, just, there's a lot that hasn't changed in a long time. And I won't go into details, but I've been feeling discontent. And when we feel discontent, our temptation is to look at our circumstances. You know, usually our circumstances have gone awry somehow. Um, and that's not an invalid thing to do, you know. Um, however, as I looked and I studied at this, um, God prompted me to look inwardly. And so I think that's what we're going to do today as a body. We're going to look inwardly. Now, I'm going to front load this teaching and just say that Paul is looking at desire. Okay? So we tend to think um, in a sense that uh, we're very rational beings. You know, we're very rational. We, we believe something and we act upon it. We believe something and we act upon it. So the basis of our action is our beliefs. Um, but that's only half true. That's only half true. Often, the basis of our beliefs are our desires, the things we want. And so, it goes kind of like this. We have a strong desire for something, and that desire influences the way we think about that thing, and we accommodate our, our um, focus, this particular thing, or way of being, with our ideologies, our doctrines, and so on. And this is what influences our actions. Now, we're going to look at, I guess, a kind of case study today um, in Chapter 6, and just explore a little more that, that paradigm, that pattern, and what it means for us as believers in our work settings, so outside of church, but also in our church setting as well. At least I hope that's what we're going to do. So, <clears throat> Paul starts by talking about slavery. He talks about sl slavery or bond service. Um, what is it? Well, it's not the modern day slavery that we think it is. It's not um, what happened to Africans um, as they were taken to different parts of the world and exploited. It is kind of like, uh, in my mind, um, I, th I think of it in terms of the welfare service. In the ancient world, if you were in debt, you usually ended up as a bond servant. Now, bond servant or slave is such a broad term, it, descri it describes a wide range of people. So, 
if you fell on hard times, it might have been something you did volu voluntarily. Or it may be that you can't pay a debt and you have to become a bond servant. And essentially, <coughs> you're working off your debt. You're working off your debt. But debt itself is a broad term. It may be that you're a criminal and you owe a debt to society. It may be that you owe a particular person. Um, it may be that you're in poverty and you sell one of your offspring, your child, into service. So it, it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't the, the modern slavery you know. It's kind of like uh, ancient world wel welfare service, you know, welfare state in a sense. It was, it was bad because um, your rights were not your own. You had no rights anymore. You were property. Now, the Bible is not, um, what's the word? The Bible cares. It's, it's not ambivalent, sorry, about slavery. Okay, so in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 21, Paul urges that people who came to Christ, who were saved under slavery, that they shouldn't be frustrated, but if they can, they should try to gain their freedom. Slavery looked different, again, for Romans and Jewish people. So, though slavery was a common thing, the Bible advocates in Deuteronomy that um, people don't mistreat their slaves. People don't <coughs> mistreat their slaves. Actually, they take care of them. Okay? People could gain their freedom if they were mistreated, if they were badly beaten and they had a tooth knocked out or an eye damaged. <clears throat> God grants them their freedom in Deuteronomy. So, as we come to this text, at the start, Paul is talking to those who are under the yoke of slavery. And he, he's saying that it's important that they regard their masters of, as being worthy of all honour. And he says this because it's very difficult if you're someone who has lost all their rights or who's in a really difficult position, who's discontent, to do your duty in such a way as to bring honour to God. He says that there's potential for God's name to be reviled. That's God's name, his nature, who he is. There's potential for God's teaching to be reviled, the gospel, what God says about humanity, an answer. So there's, there's, there's potential for people to get the wrong idea about who God is and what he's doing in the world. <clears throat> so we see from the text that some of these people who were masters, who owned slaves, were unbelieving, and some of them were believers. And so you may have a situation where there were believing masters and believing um, servants. And it's important that those who were under um, the yoke of slavery were not disrespectful to their brothers because they're brothers. They serve the same master. And despite the slavery, despite this situation, these people, these masters, were beloved by God. They were, count them God, 
to answer their prayers. And God loved them and he was invested in their gain. So these servants were to be of benefit to them. So it's important that we realise a, a servant is to be of benefit to their master. Now, there were certain teachers, false teachers, who would come into um, the midst of the flock in Ephesus and they would teach contrary doctrine. So they would urge, you know, we're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. We live an abundant life. And they focus and they say on, the, on this particular thing and they say, look, this, isn't, um, this doesn't accord with your situation. It's not right. You shouldn't be a, a slave. You shouldn't be a servant. Rebel against your masters and gain your freedom. And now Paul, in this part of the, the text, is writing to contradict that. And he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, we know it's true today that people um, constantly teach doctrine that does not agree with Christ. We know that it's true that there's people who um, love to listen to doctrine that doesn't agree with Christ. And what Paul says is that people need to be taught and urged. So this is, it's not just a matter of um, teaching, but it's a matter of forceful urging. You know, people need to be swayed. People need to be swayed. And the, the, the focus of this is that Jesus' words are healthy, they're sound, they're sound. <coughs> and the, the, the logic of the point here is that if you disagree with what is healthy and sound, then you know nothing. You, can't, you cannot logically disagree with what Christ teaches and claim some kind of knowledge. You can't claim some kind of truth if you disagree with the truth. Stay with me. So at this point, we come to the, the point where we see that there are, un, are unhealthy cravings. Now, if there are, are unhealthy cravings, controversy and quarrelling, then we see also there must be healthy cravings. Okay, So just park that, healthy cravings. Keep it somewhere, and we'll come back to it. So in this text... The example is controversy and quarrels, arguments, things that have no significance and no practical value for our life as believers. Things that aren't going to help us to change into the image of Christ. Things that aren't going to help us to love one another. Um, so we see that these types of quarrels and controversies, they produce breakdowns in relationships and relations between those involved in them. They produce breakdowns in fellowship. And if you're... These, we, we all know someone who's obsessed 
with one particular thing that we know is of no real value. At times, we, ourselves, are that person. So it may be that this person's obsessed with angels. You know, and, and what that means for us, to de- you know, how that impacts our... And it's like, well, no, that's got nothing to do with the gospel. I won't go into a whole list, but I want you to consider what might be your focus, what's, what might be your unhealthy focus, what might be that point of conversation that comes up but is of no real value to those who are trying to live out the gospel. What we do when we focus on these obsessions is to put them in the place of the gospel as being significant to cure us, to cure us of our ailments, to cure us of our sin as an answer for um, those things that keep us from God. So Paul says that these are people who have bad character and are deprived of the truth. And are deprived of the truth. So if we're thinking about it for a moment, he's talking about teachers. Okay, so I want to draw a distinction. He's talking about people who are purposefully coming in unrepentantly and teaching a different gospel. And they're teaching things that are um, drawing people away from the real gospel. So I'm not, what I'm not saying is that this is the position you're in. What I am saying is that these people are of bad character. And actually, if we share that same focus, then bad char- elements of um, character may creep into the way we are, who we are, and how we behave. And we'll develop that a bit later on. And so, part of what's wrong with the character is that they see having God's character, being like God, as a means to an end. They see relationship with God as a means to an end. And you need to think about this. If being like God... You know, the, the, the good things that are derived from being like God. So it may be that you're more diligent. It may be that you put more effort in. It may be that you wake up earlier. It may be that you go the extra mile. Whatever it is, you don't swear, etc., etc. If these things are a means um, to an end, if your relationship with God, if your prayer is all about attaining something, then that thing you're striving for is bigger than God. It's bigger than you and your need to be transformed into the image of God. Whatever that thing is, it's bigger than a relationship with God. Now Paul says there is gain in contentment with godliness. Okay? He says there is gain in contentment with godliness. And that's Focusing on what's truly important. So, he says this again, anything else is a waste of time. So these people are trying to gain financially in this particular example. But <clears throat> what he says is that that's, not, that's no gain at all. 
contentment with godliness is gained because we're focusing on what's truly important. And if you really think about it, anything that's not at the core of your need, anything that's not truly at the core of your need is a waste of time and energy. Contentment in God, in who he is, in relationship with him, gains you time and it gains you energy and it gains you peace of mind. Focusing on pursuing, say, riches, following this example, won't guarantee you that you'll be rich. But, according to Paul here, it will guarantee you destruction. So, for the love of... No, let me come back. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And you can replace money here with other things. The point is that the people in this text have strong cravings. They have strong cravings and desires for things and these things are shaping their beliefs and their beliefs are shaping their actions now equally focusing on God is not a way to gain the things you might want to gain so you might feel like oh well Lord I spend my time with you, I do this for you. Why am I not in a better situation? However, if we look within this book still, we see that people who work hard and smart in order to provide for their family, to provide for their church, to provide for the community, are, are people who God uses. So, actually, you might... You, you're, you're probably well aware that actually there are lots of rich people who might fund Bible training courses, might fund um, pastors in churches, might fund church programs, and they're able to do this because their focus is not the money itself, but it's what they can do with the money for God. It's about meeting their responsibility, meeting their need. So, we get to this point at which we see these depraved people. These people who have particularly strong cravings for money. I would actually characterise these people as taking a teaching, maybe something like abundance. Jesus says that um, we, will have, we will live an abundant life. And, and just majoring on that one thing. Oh, you're supposed to have an abundant life. You're going you're gonna to be prosperous in your finances. Oh, you're supposed to have an abundant life. You're going to be abundant in your knowledge of all things. Angels included. <laughs> and, and they've so distorted the gospel that there are people who are rebelling against the, the teaching of the gospel, they're rebelling against their masters 
and they're portraying God in the wrong light. Now, obviously I'm drawing a parallel between us. The things we desire change our, um, our focuses, our foci. Um, so we have strong cravings and desires for X. We see godliness as a means to get X. And our dispositions towards the word end up, sorry, our dispositions to the word, the, our word that disagree with our focus, we, I think, unconsciously, initially, and then increasingly consciously, begin to disagree with. Have you ever wondered how someone who was so faithful to the word ended up denouncing the word? Have you ever wondered where, where that came from? They ca- these things come from our own desires. So our ideas about what spiritual fulfillment is, um, what, you know, what it means to be spiritual, okay, they may or may not be biblical initially, <coughs> but often develop from, from that place, or often are, sorry, often are biblical, but they develop from that place of our own desires. And our doctrines change to accommodate this focus distorting the gospel. And as I've found in my own um, walk, distort my actions. I begin to justify being lazy, getting to work late, not giving my all, or maybe stealing, taking, you know, start small books and exercise books, things that I can use in my own life. Speaking badly of um, my boss to other staff. Now then what happens is, if I'm just like them, what does that say about who God is? My father. And what does it say about um, the gospel and its ability to change my heart? If I'm there saying to them, this is what the gospel means. Let's look at, um, in staying in the same book again, um, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's the principle we're talking about in a nutshell. Watch yourself. Then watch your doctrine. And you'll be saving people. I, I struggled about what to title this message because there's so many interesting things that are going on here. If you want to know why your evangelism is blunt, why people are not being saved, check your desires. Check your desires. If you want to know why you're struggling with a particular sin, it's just stubborn. It won't go away. Check your desires. Check them. What, what's, what's the focus of them? Now, at this point, <coughs> I could 
just say, um, you know, whatever you desire, whatever you're doing wrong, just stop it. <coughs> Stephen, come play the music. Let's all go home. Um, but that wouldn't be the gospel. That wouldn't be the gospel. <coughs> and what Paul says is that the people of God must flee. That means we're not immune to this. But it's not flee in a negative sense. It's pursue. It's do something in place of. It's replace this craving with this craving. Okay? So I want you to think about the movement of pursuing. Maybe you've seen a um, film where there's an uh, action sequence and a person's in the car and they're driving after um, the bad guy or maybe the good guy's getting away. Maybe we'll swap it around for this purpose. <laughs> so the, the good guy's after the bad guy and whatever. As they're pursuing, as they're moving closer to the object that they're trying to reach, they're moving further away from some other landmark, aren't they? So in some sense, there's a, a fleeing, there's a moving away but only in order to get closer to. And that's what we're doing as believers. Hebrews 11.6 speaks to us about this. And it says, once I get there. Okay, <clears throat> And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Those who diligently what? Amen, seek him. Now, I'm, I can be like the most passive person. I know you wouldn't believe that about me. But, you know, I'm quite a laid back person. But this is calling for action. This is a call to action. If you're wondering why there's this persistent issue in your life, if you're wondering why you're not feeling God at the moment, don't wait. Don't wait for this feeling. Don't wait for this persistent issue to stop. We need to diligently seek him. Now, it's not talking about unbelievers. Um, Bertram quoted Romans 3 earlier, and in Romans 3.11, it says this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. I'm not talking to, about unbelievers, I'm talking about those who God himself has pursued. Thank you, Sue. On point. Um, I'm talking about those who God has pursued. We're to pursue God. How do we do this? Well, it's pursuit of God through the untarnished, unchanging, unstained gospel in verse 14. Because in the gospel, more and more we see and have revealed for us Jesus, who is the only image of God. 
It says that God is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's the Father. Yet we have him in the image of Jesus. That's who we need to crave. That's who we need to make our focus. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Now, if you don't crave him today, I don't feel guilty. God is kind of an acquired taste. He's like olives. So I am saying if you don't like olives, you need to repent. But I am also saying that I was once there as well. I didn't like olives. And God rescued me. Um, God is an acquired taste because he is alone with immortality. He's the one who dwells in the unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. God is holy. God is unique. God is God. And we don't really want him. You know, it's only by his spirit that we have the opportunity to acquire a taste for him. Acquire a taste for him. Do it. Now I want to go back to, and I'm just going to finish on this note. I, I want to go back to verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only sovereign. I mean, we could add master of masters, but it would be redundant. We are servants. Yes, we're children, but we are servants. We are slaves and we're to be of good service to the master. How? Well, John says that we can't love God, who we haven't seen, if we can't love our brothers, who we have seen. So we're to be a service to the master here especially, in loving one another through our actions. This is not in order to gain God, not in order to pursue him, but once we have, we're to serve through loving one another. Move a chair. Don't watch someone else struggling. Attend church. Harry's not here today for good reasons. But don't, don't you feel her absence? I know you will want the, the chairs are packed away and, you know, that, you know, we're all socialising. You'll feel her absence. And your absence is felt when you're not here. Get involved. Speak to someone. Join a ministry. Serve God and check your cravings. Go home and, and examine yourself, as the Bible says. Examine what it is you want the most. What's that thing that you're obsessed by? What's your focus? Because by doing that and, and looking at that and repenting, we may well be able to change the way that people see God in our outside environments we may very well 
help to save others. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.